Good evening and welcome to Psychedelic Healing. My name is Sonia Cato, your host, nurse anesthetist and mental health advocate here to talk about psychedelic healing. Tonight, I am honored to introduce my guest, Dr. Kristen Spear. She is one of the co-founders and board directors of the Psychedelic Pharmacists Association. In 99, she witnessed the horrific massacre unfold at Columbine High School. Her adjacent high school shared classrooms with displaced Columbine students, learning more about their stories, trauma, and healing, sparking her interest in mental health and palliative care. As a pharmacist, she has practiced for nearly a decade in end-of-life and palliative care, and physicians, other prescribers, consulted her team on how to manage complex patients with distressing symptoms. She often recommended and designed ketamine regimens due to the medication's rapid effects on depression, anxiety, and pain. Through her work in the field, she would be introduced to the potential of other psychedelic therapies for palliative care and mental health, and she has become a trusted source of psychedelic pharmacy curriculum for pharmacy schools across the nation and currently advocates for the expansion of psychedelic use in palliative care. Welcome, Dr. Spear. Thank you for uh, coming on to the show tonight. Yeah, thank you for having me. Beautiful. I do want to start. Thank you so much. I didn't actually know about this Psychedelic Pharmacist uh, Association, so I'm very happy that this exists. Uh, when did you, when was this founded and what kind of work do you do with this association? The association, we started talks about this before the pandemic even ever started because we knew that mental health was just such a growing issue. And actually, the profession of pharmacy has been very trying to get out of the box, literally out of the dispensing box, out of retail. And more and more pharmacists are becoming entrepreneurs and really focused on the wellness and functional medicine and preventative medicine and psychedelics falls within that scope as well people aren't just wanting to take a pill for an ill and they really want to heal themselves so we recognize these different needs and we came together as i spoke a little bit more about more publicly about natural medicines and psychedelic medicines in the end of life a handful of us pharmacists came together over social media like LinkedIn and said, hey, we really need to start something here. We know a lot about medications. We know a lot about not just medications, but pharmacotherapy, the application of medications within pathology um, and different disease states and wellness and well-being. And we need to come together and really lead the direction in this area. And um, so since, since that day, we, we started this Psychedelic Pharmacist Association. Uh, we formally established in early 2021. And our mission is to educate, collaborate, and advocate. And those three pillars, those three missions, are really more broadly applied, not just to the pharmacist or pharmacy profession, but educating others, Others could be other professionals, other participants or patients, legal folks, <laughs> other clinical professions um, about pharmacology and about the efficacy and safety of these medicines and their regulatory development and research. The collaboration piece is also broadly speaking, 
So we we're working with all kinds. We're in dis- we are engaged in discussion with maps and how pharmacists will be involved in the distribution of safety and education of MDMA when it is FDA approved soon, for example. So collaborating with many different parties, regulatory, legal, and other other professions. And then the third pillar, that advocacy pillar, is really pushing healing and the potential that psychedelic therapies or natural plant, natural medicines with psychedelic properties, pushing those forward through the continuum of patient care and making sure that ultimately the patients benefit and that these substances are used appropriately, safely, um, effectively, and ethically as well. And I think from a place of pharmacists, it's easy to associate us with with drugs and medications, whereas you know there's we're a lot more than that, and we take a, a quite a bit of more holistic pr- ap- approach and perspective, and holistic or um, a community perspective as well. So we understand the importance of social determinants of health and diversity and equity and inclusion and involving people who are actually experts on these drugs for thousands and thousands of years. So we're known as the the medication experts, the pharmacotherapy experts, but it's very important to many members, including on our board, to center and include the folks, the legacy cultures and the indigenous folks who are the true experts and have been using these medicines for thousands and thousands of years. So that is our association in sort of a long-winded definition, but it encompasses a lot of things that we're very passionate about. No, definitely. I've I've learned something new because in my mind, I also have for pharmacy, just very medication, you know, biochemistry, that orientation. So I love to hear that you're kind of expanding to the true healing because sometimes it's not about just taking a pill, right? It's about that holistic approach and the full body and the biochemistry, and you have all of that, you know, knowledge in there. So I love that you're having that approach and just reaching out and not just prescribing the pill, but really educating. So I love this association for that because at the same time, we do have with the psychedelics to look at the biochemistry of the body. They can't just assume that it's going to be safe because it's a plant medicine. We do have other things on board. So having this as a resource and we'll kind of go in a little bit more in depth for specific psychedelics and certain uh, medication interactions. But I'm actually curious, since you started mentioning about collaborating with MAPS and the ability to you know, distribute and safely provide MDMA once it becomes rescheduled for treatment for PTSD, can you give us a little sneak peek into something that you guys are discussing as far as the protocol and the resources that you're going to be able to provide? Uh, yeah, and this information is available publicly as well. But the thought is that once MDMA is FDA approved, it would be a specialty medication. So, from that st- standpoint, the specialty pharmacy and specialty pharmacists and, and staff that work in those areas would naturally be recruited to apply their skill set and their knowledge and their professional application. I don't know how else to say that their hands, mm-hmm. basically, their involvement in uh, doing what they do currently, which is, you know, educating folks, assisting them with payment of these brand new medications, 
helping to manage patients and navigate patients through different pharma, especially pharmacy networks. There's even pharmacists that work in PBMs, which have a lot to a lot of engagement and pricing and so on. So, what's a PBM? A pharmacy benefit manager. Pharmacy benefit. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. They manage drug benefits. Okay. Um, yeah, because how are you going to be distributing? Is that something that they're thinking that the patients will receive on their own at home? When you say distribute and provide it to the patients, or because yeah. I feel like isn't it supposed to be clinic based treatment? No, yeah, yeah. So when I talk about distribute to patients, it's meeting the patient in their setting in the clinic setting. Okay. okay. Yeah. Ultimately, to providers and clinics, and then of course the provider will will supply to the patient. Okay. So it'll be to the clinic, but specifically distributed to a specific patient. Okay. That's Just wanted good. to clarify that because I was like, yeah, oh, they're going to be giving it at home. That's the difference right now is that uh, these medications will likely not be available at your your typical, you know, retail or community pharmacy in those settings. Now joining us is Dr. Spears' colleague, Dr. Saad Ali Olimat, also a licensed pharmacist and educator of psychedelic medicine and the co-founder of Psychedelic Pharmacists Association. Welcome, Dr. Saad. Hey, it's good to be here. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. So we were just discussing the role of the association and all the the aspects that you, you know, cover in uh, providing the education and resources for the community at large. And we were just talking about maps and the regulatory, you know, component that we're all working together as uh, MDMA becomes uh, legalized to provide treatment for PTSD. I did want to continue on and just go a little bit scientific here as we talk, we're talking about the MDMA and just touch on the safety aspects, the medications that may or may not interact, things that you would consider, because I'm sure you guys get asked many times for each specific medication. So I don't know if you want to kind of touch on that, Dr. Saad. Yeah, so it's really looking at safety on a multitude of levels. So, of course, there's a pure drug-drug interaction perspective that we can look at. There's also the drug-disease state interaction that we can look at. And outside of that, it's also a lot of the risk-reward to look at as it relates to the potential psychological, emotional risks that patients might have if they go into these experiences with these medicines without preparation, without a healthy set setting, without without a plan for integration, without mm-hmm. support during the dose day, without community to talk to, to to confide in about what their what insights came up during their experience. And also the the underlying like what's going on in the psyche and the on the uh, behind the scenes. So there's a there's a lot there's a multitude of safety considerations to look at when we're talking about psilocybin, for example. There is a lot of questions about can I take psilocybin if I'm on an antidepressant? And exactly, you know the, the there's it's it's tough to try to balance the fine line of risk reduction and also making sure that we're not operating in anything you know illegal and like promoting some type of illegal use because psilocybin is not yet legalized here in the states Mm -hmm. and some areas have decriminalized it or deprioritized it 
course, you know, Oregon, Colorado have uh, regulatory frameworks in place or are working on those. So to answer that question, when I, when I ask people about what, first I want to know what, what type of antidepressants are you? Like, is it actually an anti- antidepressant? Sometimes they're actually, sometimes they're not on an SSRI or SNRI, but they're on another compound. Uh-huh. Let's say they're on an SSRI. Next, it'll be okay. Have you ever taken a psychedelic before? And if so, what kind of psychedelic? So the risk here isn't actually serotonin syndrome or serotonin toxicity. A lot of online, you know, Reddit group chats or Reddit, Reddit threads or forums will talk about serotonin toxicity. Psilocybin doesn't work by increasing intranaptic serotonin transmission. So therefore, by default, the risk of serotonin syndrome or serotonin toxicity is is almost is non-existent if you look at it in terms of the theoretical science there. Yeah, what can happen is the blunting of the psychedelic experience. And that in and of itself is also something to be very aware about because if someone were to spend thousands of dollars to go to a you know resort or uh, go to a uh, retreat overseas, they do months and months of preparation. They find someone to take care of their kids while they go on this week-long excursion and they're on this antidepressant. The blunting experience, when you have these high expectations of some type of transformative, mystical type experience and not feeling anything, and then coming back to your matrix and nothing's changed and that was your last hope, that that is very challenging. And that to me is unseen. So yeah, the there's a lot of conversations about increased risk of serotonin toxicity or serotonin syndrome. But if we're talking purely SSRIs or SNRIs and specifically psilocybin, that risk is very, 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 very low. That's so interesting. I had no idea. I always thought about in my back back of my mind was serotonin syndrome and that's what everybody always talks about. So it's not necessarily that that's going to happen. It's really that their experience is going to be blunted, which is such a waste. And I see that all the time with like ketamine, if they're on, you know, Adderall or some sort of stimulant, you know, they have no experience. So, so with psilocybin, it's SSRIs and SNRIs that blunt it. Is that something that you can like updose the psilocybin to combat blunting or is that part not safe? That's a great question. There's no science of, there's like no literature to support that. With that said, anecdotally, you know, in the underground, that's what some practitioners like to do. As a pharmacist, I can't ever recommend that. But based off of what I've read and what I've heard from people in my community, that is a way to circumvent that blunting of the experience. Another another option too that people uh, do in the in some of the community setting is a tester dose. So rather than trying to you know, do the whole preparing for this you know high dose experience. You know, high dose being maybe like three grams plus, a tester dose of around 0.4 to 0.8 grams or so. That's usually enough so that way it's higher than a, a microdose. It's more in that range of a museum or concert dose, which generally people feel that, where right? they feel that they are just more in tune. They feel more maybe open, more creative, more calm. They, they, there's a noticeable effect. So having using that tester dose while you are on an antidepressant, like an SSRI or an SNRI, that is a good way to to predict whether or not you'll have a blunted experience on a full dose or a high dose. So that's what some folks like to do. Yeah, I've also had some of my ketamine patients when they disclose, you know, that they've 
done psilocybin or had those experiences, they've said that they've tapered down their dose of the SSRI or SNRI, but not necessarily gotten off of it, right? So, and then they kind of dose up a little bit to affect um, for that. So that's, I learn everything new. I learn something new every day. So that's interesting. But with uh, MDMA though, that is a different risk, Absolutely. right? You do have right. the risk of the serotonin syndrome. Yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, because the way MDMA works is completely different uh, relative to psilocybin. You know, MDMA just like squeezes out all the amonomines into the synaptic cleft. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, another thing too is, of course, the blunted experience. But there are conversations about the risk of uh, serotonin toxicity. Because MDMA specifically, the risk is higher with NAOI. Absolutely. Yeah. So. Okay. These are some old antidepressants that are hardly used anymore. This class of medications, because it does significantly increase intrasynoptic levels of serotonin, that you can theoretically increase the risk of serotonin syndrome more significantly because MDMA also increases intrasynoptic levels of serotonin. So that's where you really run into the increased risk is with two different agents that can increase directly increase serotonin levels in the synapse. So if we're talking about SSRIs and MDMA, yes, they can increase that risk. However, the risk is much higher with NAOIs, not only in oxidase inhibitors. Okay. And I think and the biggest risk with MDMA too is the blunted experience. That's definitely something that is, has been shown it's because the way MDMA works is that it, it binds to the, ser- the serotonin transporter itself to go into the presynaptic neuron. But the thing is that some SSRIs will will bind to CERT and make it so that way MDMA can actually go into that neuron. And for those that are not familiar with biochemistry and the nerve pathways and anatomy, a synapse is actually like an area in between the nerve fibers where they communicate and they send out all these like different vesicles and that's where like the serotonins and you know all the other neurotransmitters kind of cross paths so when they're talking about you know blocking it or squeezing them out it's just having all those serotonin just in that pathway and they're just having too much you know so that's where the danger is more with the mdma and it's good to know not necessarily with the psilocybin are there other psychedelics that you guys are aware of with these safety concerns with the serotonin syndrome or any other complication? Yeah, ayahuasca. Because mm-hmm. okay. ayahuasca acts basically like an MAOI. It has a Maui MAOI in it. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Oh, so that's very dangerous. So you're going to really have the similar effect as with the MDMA as far as the danger. Correct. Yeah. And you wouldn't want to use that with an SSRI okay. or an SNRI, your traditional antidepressants. Okay. So for somebody that's um, looking for that type of treatment to heal you know, their trauma or any other mental health, they would really need to work with somebody to, you definitely want to taper them off, completely off of the medications or is like a low dose acceptable or what's kind of like the range that you guys um train people or educate people with well because the there's not a ton of 
evidence-based literature on this, the ideal state would be to taper them off completely. However, it takes a long time usually. um, And tapering off is very difficult for some folks. Um, And it's a very patient-specific process. Even if you follow conservative protocols to taper, some patients will still have withdrawal effects that are pretty intolerable. And then if you think about how certain medications how they stabilize individuals. If you're going to taper somebody off of an SSRI or an SNRI or any other antidepressant for that matter, you have to think about what kind of mindset you might leave them in before they go into an experience. And sometimes that does more damage than a taper. So it's somebody who wants to receive ayahuasca and who is also on an SSRI is a very difficult predicament. Yeah, it definitely takes a lot of time. With with ketamine, there isn't. I mean, I I own a ketamine clinic, so I do infusion treatment with that. And I know your experience. You actually, Dr. Kristen, were using it, using ketamine for the palliative care in hospice and all that. And how did you find anything with the ketamine? Did Have you utilized other psychedelics? Because I know ketamine is technically the only legal psychedelic, right? That we right. can work with. Are you able to provide the other psychedelics, you know, for end of life care? Unfortunately, when I was doing that kind of consulting, people were not quite still talking about psilocybin in end of life at that point. And that's actually when I started learning about that as a possible therapy, as an alternative. And really you can't access, even if I were to recommend these things, nobody knew when you're in hospice and palliative care, that type of demographic typically is quite a bit older. They're in bed, right? They don't really have the first the knowledge or maybe even the desire to try those medications due to stigma, nor do they have the access. There wasn't really a huge role, and there still isn't right now outside of clinical trials to access psilocybin in end of life, unfortunately. But yes, ketamine was very commonly used in a certain set of patients who were appropriate and seemed um, could benefit with minimal risk. And those were the patients I focused on for not just mood and end-of-life distress, but also pain that wasn't responding to opioids and other analgesics. Wow. Thank you so much for that. That's it's something so important. I, I really feel that. I think that's going to change with end-of-life care. And I think it's already changing, actually, where there are, especially in the states where it's legal, now, right, that they're able to provide those services for end-of-life care. Are there any, you know, before, you know, we've touched on psilocybin, we've touched on ayahuasca, MDMA, and then also ketamine. Ketamine is actually pretty relatively safe. Um, There are some competition uh, with benzodiazepines and some of the antipsychotics. Are there new medications? Because I always have my patients, okay, hold benzos, hold stimulants, hold the antipsychotics like the Abilify, the Motrogene. Are there other medications, you know, being in the pharmacy space that you know of that has been now shown to compete with the benefits of ketamine? Not that I'm aware of, not that would be clinically significant, and especially not in the hospice and palliative population. Um, And that's because ketamine engages and interacts with the NMDA neurotransmitter pathway, which involves glutamate. And that's totally separate from serotonin, serotonergic pathways, which are classic psychedelics typically involve. 
Yeah, that's that's why I I love it. It's easily you know it's accessible, right? It's the only legal psychedelic. What are you having any specific projects that you're working with in your association that will be coming out soon? Any different uh, conferences, uh, different programming, different education that you wanted to highlight? We have an awesome uh, education committee within the association. So we do monthly events with the, with uh, within the, the psychedelic community, spotlighting different lectures to speak about their passion projects. Uh, additionally, we do uh, we have we have an educational program. We're in the process of launching. It's about an eight hour long course where we talk about all of the essentially all of the essentials to know regarding MDMA, psilocybin, and ketamine. So we talk about pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, dosing structures, side effects, you know, what the adverse effects look like. We talk a lot about just like the ritual use versus clinical or a contemporary use of psychedelics. Uh, It's a very robust program that we're launching, aiming to be released at Q1 of next year, um, focused on our pharmacy audience, but anyone would be able to digest that information. I think there's one particular type of medication or medication that we haven't covered that not a lot of people seem to be focused on too much, but it's a critical interaction. And, you know, everybody's focused on the risk of serotonin syndrome or blunting effects of psychedelics. But one medication that could potentially seriously cause harm when you combine it with either psilocybin or MDMA, that one is lithium. Lithium is a medication typically used for bipolar disorder as a mood stabilizer. It's a very unique medication. And when this medication is combined with psilocybin or MDMA, it can cause an increased risk of seizures. They have been reported. And right now, top experts in the field consider this combination to be contraindicated. Mm-hmm. And but not for ketamine, right? Because I actually have ketamine patients on lithium. No. Okay. That. Okay. And well, how does it increase the risk? You guys don't know the yet, right? The risk of seizures. You've just seen it. These. Well, yeah, we don't know yet. There, I think there are some theories published, but I think the answer right now is we just don't know. No, there's some literature out there, but I'm not too well read on the exact uh, pathophysiology of that. Even if it is published, it's probably, you know, very much theoretical. Yeah. Most drug interactions are, but when you have an association that's reported several cases with a similar outcome, it's hard to ignore that. Okay. So they have seen those on a pretty regular basis. Okay. So that's very, very good to know. Is there any other uh, interactions or other things that we need to look out for when using plant medicine? There are some, but I want to give Saad the floor. Do you have any that you'd like to mention? The one that comes to mind that's unique is Welbutrin and MDMA. So, you know, Welbutrin is essentially a mild stimulant. It's like a, I think a cathinone and MDMA, as we know, is also another another stimulant. As the way they metabolize, they can essentially feed on each other to make the MDMA, MDMA dosing a bit higher. But then also the so- sodium levels are modulated as well to increase the risk of seizures too. So we 
generally with a Wellbutrin, it's recommended just to withdraw it, withhold it for a day or two prior to the session. That way there, that risk goes, you know, goes down tremendously if the patient's able to do that. But then also it's important to think about the setting in which MDMA is being taken. You know, of course you have like the, the way we do it in clinical trials or the way they do it in clinical trials where it's very controlled, you know, uh, just like comfortable, you know, not many variables in the setting and in, uh, in like a warm living room environment. But if people are taking MDMA and more of the recreational sense, they're dancing, they're sweating, they're under, you know, there's a lot of stimulating music, the, that that risk of that of uh, well-putrin and MDMA could potentially exacerbate a negative effect on the person's well-being. So that's that's one unique interaction taken into consideration. Okay. Well, that is, so lithium and Wellbutrin, those are things that I had no idea about. So that's something that I will add into my education with uh, patients when they're looking both at the psilocybin and MDMA on the other ground, underground. So there are some more, but I think, you know, I know we're, we're up on time, but I think that the point is that there is some risk that I think folks need to be aware of with a lot of different types of medications and, you know, consulting on pharmacists, including psychedelic pharmacists for help, as well as the entire, you know, other resources and clinicians and individuals who are available to support that kind of information and ensure safe use or being able to educate the patient about potential risks versus benefits and how to manage those and how mm-hmm. how strong is that evidence or how severe could that outcome be is really important to engage professionals and experts in those discussions. Oh, Definitely. And do you have those resources? Like, is that part of your, on the website for the association that kind of helps as a resource guide for patients and other pharmacists, other medical professionals to actually really look at what's, you know, Mm -hmm. to provide safe safety for their patients? We're still building these things out. So we don't have anything active right, right now, aside from some of the courses that are available to our members. But there are some good resources out there. One of our favorites is the Spirit Pharmacist. You've probably heard of him. His name's Ben Malcolm. Another pharmacist is Kellen Thomas. They're both very knowledgeable in these areas and have published some pretty reviews and articles out on literature. Wonderful. I will definitely yeah, start looking at that because it's so important to be educated on that. Um, Especially, I had no idea about this lithium and wellbutrin, especially for these uh, MDMA and psilocybin. Although it is an underground, that's something that uh, those of you out there listening, you know, it's something to consider when you are going to be uh, considering a retreat center or maybe going to Oregon, California, you know, or Colorado, you know, for those states to to look for legal treatment. And hopefully, those providers, the shamans and the facilitators, are actually educated on that as well. So. That's something that uh, I think they'll be looking towards, you know, the education and the resources that you provide. So thank you for that. In quarter one, right uh, next year, 2024, you're looking to start providing education or more education resources, or will it be only to members? Is it just a membership-based association? Yep. Yes, most of it is. Yes. Okay. And do you have to be a pharmacist for that or can you be a medical professional? You can be anyone. Be anyone. Anyone. Anyone and everyone. We have lawyers (laughs) on our in our membership, for example, could be advocates, patient advocates, psychedelic advocates, research and development. No, that's great. Perfect. Well, I will actually 
perhaps look into that myself, actually. So thank you for uh, everything that you guys are doing. Thank you for all your work. And really expanding just beyond just the pharmaceutical hospital, but really getting out there to educate and and advocate. And I know you didn't want to discuss or reach out too much about the policy and and everything um, working out in the the government aspect, but uh, I'm sure that is something that you are doing in the background. So keep it. Yeah. Yes, indeed. I'm in I'm in discussions with Colorado and their rulemaking on Proposition 122, the Natural Medicine Health Act, and a lot of that information is, of course course confidential for a reason just because nothing's finalized yet and uh, there are a lot of stakeholders and they want to keep it as fair as possible so yeah very it's true that's that's a good advice to, to, to follow so well thank you both so much dr Kristen spear and dr Saad. i am going to end this podcast by thanking you both for all your work And thank you out there for joining us for this week's dose of psychedelic healing. Have a wonderful night.